And it's not hard simply because we don't understand it. It's hard because it's difficult to apply. And many people uh, have read it, and as they read it, they have projected certain things on it, and they miss exactly the truths that God is trying to reveal. And so we're going to continue here for another week, and we'll be here next week. Uh, We're talking about relationships. And uh, you understand, if you haven't been with us, as we've walked through Ephesians, uh, God, through Paul in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, is speaking to the church about who we are now in Jesus Christ, that we have been redeemed, that we have now been given every spiritual blessing that God has available for us, that everything we need for this life to live abundantly, to live full, has been given to us. And so he reminds us of all that in those first three chapters. And then when we come to 4 and 5 and 6... He lays out how we can apply that, how we can practice living up to who we really are in Christ, our our sanctification, living up to our justification, matching up those two things. And, And so as he does that, he is laying out principles and truths for how we can walk that life. And we discovered in chapter 5 and verse 18 that he reminded us that we are called to be filled with the Spirit, that God's will for the Christian is that we allow the Holy Spirit to control every area of our life. Being filled with the Spirit is not about you getting more of the Spirit. You've already been given all of the Holy Spirit that you need when you accepted Jesus Christ. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is Him getting more of you, of you opening up your life to allow Him to control every area, and especially in the area of relationships. And that's where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 5. Now, This idea of being filled with the Spirit, I want to remind you before we get into the passage, requires a dying to self. It's not an easy task. It's not something that you can just say, Holy Spirit, here I am, have every area. Because your flesh, your old nature is going to rise up and say, no, you can't have this. You you can't have this relationship. You can't have this area or this part of my life. And so to be able to walk controlled by the Holy Spirit requires that you open up yourself to every area and that you die yourself. Now, we find ourselves, as I said, looking at a passage that deals with relationship, especially in husbands and wives and how they relate one to another. Now, Paul in this passage is trying to redeem and lay out principles that were lost in the Garden of Eden. And I'm going to explain that more in a minute, but it's important for you to understand that this passage is in the context of marriage. See, so much of the confusion that comes out of this passage, so much of the reading into this passage comes because people try to take it and make it say something it doesn't say. They try to take it and make it fit some certain political agenda or some certain religious agenda. But you can't take these truths at the end of chapter 5 and apply them to other areas and take the spirit out of them. If you take the Holy Spirit leadership out of them, then you lose the meaning of what it means to be a husband and a God-filled, Spirit-filled husband, a Spirit-filled wife in a marriage. Now, make no mistake, this passage, Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33, uh, has been misused, avoided, watered down, and debated uh, all through time, and even more so today in our culture, because this hits us right where we live. This hits us in our marriage relationship. It hits us in the closest relationship that we have. And while many of us are willing to say that our marriages are good, God didn't call us to good. God called us to abundance. God called us to fullness. God called us to great. And while some would say their marriages are good, many would be willing to say they're less than what they need to be. And that's the principles that Paul is laying out to help us regain 
Now we need to understand that these principles can't be removed apart from the Holy Spirit. So as we read through this, as we discuss it, I'm going to ask that you would let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Because uh, it's easy to understand that the principles that Paul's laying out run so counter to where our culture is today. So our culture has identified the roles of husbands and wives, and it is so different than what Paul lays out that the moment we begin to read something like this, it sounds foreign to us, especially those that haven't been in church much, and our self begins to rebel against it. Our self begins to say, wait, I got a problem with that. Before you allow self to do that, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you and direct you as you trust Him. Now, I shared with you last week, when you evaluate your marriage on whether or not it's good or bad, the place to look is not whether or not you argue. It's not whether or not you uh, get along or whether or not you have intimacy or whether or not uh, you are walking together. The place to evaluate first your relationship one to another is to evaluate your individual relationship to Christ. You see, marriage is a commitment between a husband and wife in Christ. And if Christ isn't the center of a marriage, that marriage will not stand on biblical principles. And so before you start looking at problems you have with your spouse, you need to examine where your relationship is to Christ and how your walk is with the Lord. Because that's the first principle that God lays out. Now, I understand we live in reality. These principles that we're going to talk about work best when a husband and wife are working together and both of them are submitting to Christ. But that's not the reality. Many relationships we have today, we have one spouse that is willing and trusting God and the other not so much. And it becomes a frustrating point. But I want to encourage you that if if you as one spouse is willing to give everything that you have to, to trust the Word of God and to apply these principles to your life, it can change your spouse. Because it will change you. And it will change some of the key elements of your marriage. And as it does that, I believe the power of God is available to change your spouse's heart and to change their determination. Now we discovered last week from Genesis chapter 2, God created marriage for two distinct reasons. The first was for companionship. He created us so we could live in a close, intimate relationship one to another. We were never intended to be alone. We were intended to live in community. That's what church does. It creates a godly community for us to live life in. But in a personal relationship, we were created for companionship with one other person. And somewhere in your life, God brought that other person into you. Now, I don't believe... There's only one person out there for everybody. I I think, you know, that idea that God has one person that's the perfect person and you've got to go and search for them, that's way too much pressure on God. Uh, Because what happens is, is you get into a relationship and it's not the working the way you want it. It's easy to say, well, God, this isn't the person you had for me, is it? Uh, That's not the way marriage works. You see, God calls you to be married. And then as he calls you and leads you to desire marriage, he brings people into your life that will fulfill that need. Now, the second step of marriage is not just companionship. The second is what I call complementing. Now, complementing is clear in Genesis chapter 2. It says that the helper, that word there, helper, meant the one who complements you. Uh, They bring out the best in you. You see, a marriage, when it's working in God-given principles, your spouse is bringing out the best in you, and you are bringing out the best in them. You are bringing out things that they didn't even know they had in them. And they're bringing out things in you you didn't even know. And you're both becoming more like Christ. Now, that word complement is not the same as completing. 
You remember the movie several years ago, Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise, when they got big on the word, you complete me. And everybody began to say, well, I need somebody to complete me. That's not biblical. It's not scriptural. It's not even psychological. Because you see, you don't need anyone to complete you. If you're a Christian this morning, you are complete and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God doesn't bring someone into your life to complete you. They bring someone into your life to compliment you. And you need to understand, some of you that are not married, the Bible's pretty clear that there are those in the room, those in the body of Christ, that are called to singleness. Sometimes it's singleness for a a lifetime, sometimes it's for a season. But regardless of that, you don't need a marriage to live an abundant life. You don't need a marriage to live a full life. You don't need a marriage to be fulfilled in life. Sometimes when God calls you to be single, it is better to trust in that than to marry the wrong person, hoping that they will somehow complete you or give you something you don't already have. Now, I say that because we're about to talk about marriage, and you're here this morning, and you're single, and you say, Pastor, this doesn't apply to me. I'm going to turn you off. No, these principles are true, and they're important for you to grasp because it's a bigger picture here, because it's the picture of Christ in the church that we're going to come back to later. And so you need to understand this to understand how Christ relates to the church, how Christ understands the church. So let's go to our passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you hadn't been with us, you know that verse 21 goes with verse 22 a lot more than it goes with verse 20. It needs to be connected. It is the foundation for everything that is to follow. Being submissive one to another means that we put others' needs before ourselves. So before you discuss anything in a relationship, you need to know that a husband is called to put the needs of his wife first, and the wife is called to put the needs of her husband first. And if we are doing that, and even in the church, we are called in our relationships to submit one to another, to put your needs before my needs, and my needs before your needs. Because if you are always looking for meeting other people's needs, guess what happens? Somebody else is meeting your needs. And we become connected. In a marriage relationship, it brings a bond that builds a foundation. We are called to mutual submission. Then he says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, so many people read this passage and never get past the first part of verse 22. That word, submit to your husband, who is the head of the wife, people get lost and they lose the context. They lose the beauty of what Paul is trying to say here. They lose the context of what Paul is is wanting us to grasp. And so before we look at why and what Paul is trying to say, let me tell you a few things that he's not saying here. Because this, as I said, verse gets so misused. Let me share with you what Paul does not say. First of all, Paul doesn't say in this passage that men are better than women. It's nowhere in here that Paul says that men are better than women. It doesn't say that men are more important than women. Nowhere in this passage. It doesn't say that men are to rule over women. There is nothing in this passage that said a man's role is to rule over a woman. He is talking specifically about a marriage relationship within the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So many people want to read into this and say, well, see, this this tells us that wives are supposed to submit to the men. Women submitting to men, especially in the church. That's not what he says here. Don't get lost in what he doesn't say. He doesn't say women are to submit to all men, just wives to their husbands. 
He doesn't say husbands are superior and that wives are inferior. Doesn't even imply it. He doesn't say husbands are to make all the decisions in the home. He doesn't say wives are to do everything that a husband asks or everything that a husband tells them to do. And I tell you all of these because I've been in churches and, and seminars where people have preached this passage to try to justify it saying some of those things. Let me tell you something. It doesn't even say that husbands are always right, which we are, but it doesn't say it in this passage. Don't try to read something in that's not there. It doesn't say wives are to blindly follow husbands. You see, what he's talking about is something very specific. And because we don't understand what he's talking about, people read this and say, well, this is just an old book. It, 2,000 years. It doesn't apply anymore. God didn't, when God put this thing together, he didn't know how our world was going to be today. And so, you know, this concept of submitting a, a wife, submitting to a husband, that, that's so old-fashioned. But you need to understand, this is revolutionary. It was revolutionary 2,000 years ago because when Paul wrote this, those in the Jewish community, wives had no rights. Wives couldn't even go to worship with their husband. They had to walk steps behind their husband. When Jewish men prayed, they prayed, Lord, thank you so much that I am not a Gentile and I am not a woman. So that should tell you where women stood in the Jewish culture. In Roman culture, in Greek culture, women were nothing more than adornments to the husband. They were there to have male children. In the Greek culture, if you wanted to divorce your wife, they didn't even have an avenue to divorce. You just left. You just went and found a new one. When that one got old, you went and found a new one. Women had no way out of a marriage. So when Paul begins to write this, this is eye-opening. It's revolutionary. It's freeing for women. And it's timeless because it still speaks today. It's groundbreaking. Because you see, if you and I would understand the power and the freedom that comes from submission, we would stop calling it a dirty word. Let me give you an example. You see, when I was lost before I came to know Jesus Christ. I was in bondage and I didn't even know it. I was in bondage to sin. I, I was in bondage to the law. But when I accepted Jesus Christ and submitted my life to Him, I didn't submit to rules or to, to law. I submitted to the person of Jesus Christ. And in submitting to Him and taking my hands off of control of my life and giving it to Him, it freed me up. It gave me freedom to live forgiven, to live in grace and in mercy. I was no longer in bondage. And if we could ever understand in marriage that when we learn to submit one to another, it brings freedom, you'd begin to see some marriages that are changed. Now I want you to stay with me because I want you to understand why this is so important. Because if you understand why, then you can understand what he's saying here. You see, we looked last week at Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We established that there were four foundations for every marriage, for a healthy marriage. And he used Adam and Eve as an example. In chapter 2, verse 24, he says, a, a wife will leave her father and her mother. He's talking about in any healthy, successful marriage, there has to be a leaving. There has to be a separation from all other relationships and, and a commitment to their spouse. You have to separate. But then there is a cleaving we learn, not just leaving, cleaving, as the King James says. And that is the coming together, the permanence. There is a oneness that is brought together. And he says, and they will be united. So it's separation, permanence, oneness, 
And then there is a partnership. It says they will be united. This is a, a conscious choice. It says they will be of one flesh. This is becoming a partner. One heart in a marriage. One voice. One spirit. Working together. And then it said in verse 25, they were naked and they didn't even know it. And the idea there is there was an intimate relationship. Nothing was hidden from one another. Everything was perfect. I mean, marriage wasn't hard. Can you imagine Adam and Eve had all that? They had intimacy. They had partnership. They had oneness. There was no pressure. And they trusted one another. There was nothing on the outside to push and give any problems. And they walked and it was beautiful. And then what happened? Sin. Because you see, when sin came in and it brought its curse, it didn't just curse as individuals. It cursed marriages. And marriages are still cursed to this day. You don't believe me? What happened when Eve, with Adam in tow, decided to listen to what the serpent said to her? Remember the story? She goes to the tree and the serpent begins to deceive her. She looks at that fruit. She decides to eat it. There's a problem there. Because see, Adam and Eve were partners. They'd always made decisions together. They'd always trusted one another. And when Eve decided to eat that fruit, although Adam was right there, she didn't say, Adam, I'm struggling with this. What should I do? Adam, I don't know what I should do. She said, I'm going to do this. And she ate that fruit. And then she turned around and said, here it is. And in that instant, the ease of partnership disappeared. No longer would it be easy for two to become one. How hard was that in your marriage? I've been married 28 years and I'm still working on it. Where we are no longer divided hearts and divided desires and divided wants. That we are one voice and one heart and one purpose. You see, that's the way God intended. But in that instant, it disappeared. And then what happened? Immediately after she ate, it said they looked down and they realized they were naked. And they created figs, leaves, or plant leaves to cover themselves. You see, in that instance, partnership disappeared and intimacy disappeared. All of a sudden, they started hiding things. And the two greatest struggles of every marriage today became the curse of sin in the Garden of Eden. And today you understand as well as I do that intimacy doesn't come easy. It takes work every day of sharing and bearing your soul and your spirit to your spouse. Partnership doesn't come easy. And you see what Paul is doing here in Ephesians is he is trying to take back what sin stole. Trying to get us back to a place where intimacy and partnership and oneness all come together. But that's not all. What else happened? Do you remember what happened in the garden? Remember in Genesis 3 when God discovered that they had sinned and he came to Eve? Do you remember what he told Eve because of her sin? He said to the woman in Ephesians, I mean Genesis 3.16, I will increase your pains in childbearing. And you will have pain when you give birth to children. Now most of you remember that passage. Childbearing became difficult because of the sin that was in our lives. And then he said this, listen, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that sounds good. You'll desire your husband. That's not what it means. See, that word there, desire, comes from an Aramaic root, which means to control. See what he's saying here? He's saying because of your sin, you will now desire or seek to control this relationship. You'll seek to control your husband. 
You're going to try to take charge now. There is going to be within you a desire. That wasn't part of it because that wasn't God's plan or it wouldn't be called a curse. And so all of a sudden, a marriage that was perfectly a partnership, what is going to be natural for women, starting with Eve, all the way through today, and every woman, is they're going to have a desire to want to control a man. They're going to want a desire to be in charge of the relationship. You've probably never seen a relationship like that, have you? And then he says this. He wasn't done. And he will rule over you. And that word rule there means to reign. So the picture that God is saying is now in marriage, what you had so beautiful and so perfect, what I created to be perfect, now is going to be a battle for intimacy and a battle for partnership. But not only that, you're going to have wives trying to control their husbands and a husband's response is going to be to rule over their wives. They're going to respond to their controlling wife by being overbearing. Reminds me of a story of Mark Twain. Mark Twain was lecturing out west and uh, sharing his stories, his short stories. And he was in Utah and he had a polygamous friend that was a Mormon. And they were debating and discussing polygamy. It got heated and finally it came down to it to where the friend looked at Mark Twain and said, I tell you what, can you find me one scripture that says polygamy is not good? If you find me one scripture, then I'll agree with you. All I'm asking for is one. Do you know one? And Mark Twain, without missing a beat, said, certainly I know one. It's probably the most well-known. No man can serve two masters. Now you'll get that later. Two wives, two masters. You see, this is where conflict in marriage started. This is where all the problems began. And all of the things that we fight about today are all rooted in what happened in the garden. And so what Paul is trying to do is reestablish these principles. And how does he do it? He does it by telling us the roles that we were created to have within the confines of marriage. Now he told us in verse 21 we're both supposed to submit. And I shared with you two weeks ago, verse 22 doesn't even use the word submit. Paul adds it from verse 21. That's how we know those two are connected. So really, verse 21 and 22 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. That's exactly how it reads in the Greek. See, what Paul says is we're both supposed to submit to one another, but I'm going to define how the wife submits. How does the wife submit? As Christ leads the church, the wife submits as the church submits to Christ. It says the husband is to be the head of the house. Doesn't mean the ruler, doesn't mean in charge, doesn't mean dominant. It means that he is the spiritual guide and director in the home and the wife is supposed to come under and submit to him. They say that doesn't sound too good. It's the same principle that we have in the church. That's the picture that he gave. Because you see, Christ leads this church. He doesn't lead it by rule. He doesn't lead it, doesn't come down with his thumb on us. How does he lead? He leads by unconditional love. He leads by providing for us. He leads by protecting us. He leads by directing us. And that's the way a husband is to lead the home. And the church, how do they respond to Christ? They follow. And so basically what Paul is saying is that we are called as husbands to lead unconditionally love, leading spirit-filled, and the wives are called to support us. Now, is that so bad? Well, you see, you understand that if a husband, this is not an excuse to be abusive. It's not an excuse to be dominant. Because the moment a husband begins to do that, he's no longer like Christ over the church. He steps out of his biblical authority. And God will deal with him. 
Ladies, listen to me. The greatest need your husband has, the greatest need men have in their lives is to be appreciated. It's to be respected. Why do you think in verse 33 at the end of this passage he says, wives, respect your husbands? Because see, men need to know that what they are doing for you is enough. They need to be appreciated. They need to have a desire to be affirmed that they are doing a good job, whatever it is that they're doing. They have an innate desire in them to protect you and defend you and provide for you. So what Paul is saying here, do you remember the word compliment? Compliment brings out what's best. So what Paul is saying is this biblically divine submission of a wife to a husband, it brings out and meets the needs that he has to lead and to protect and to provide. You see, by submitting, what you're doing is you are complimenting your husband. You are helping him guide. You are helping him lead. You are taking what, what you, you can lead. Doesn't mean that women can't lead. Women, I know a lot of homes where the women lead. Know a lot of single mothers that are incredible spiritual leaders in their home. Doesn't mean that you don't have the giftedness. Doesn't mean that you don't have the power. Doesn't mean you don't have the knowledge. What it means is you willfully and willingly let your husband know because you love him and because he loves you as Christ loves the church, you are going to allow him to lead and protect and provide and you are going to support him. You see, by doing that, you are meeting his greatest need and you are reestablishing intimacy and partnership. Those battles you had, you're not trying to be controlling. He's not trying to be dominating. You're submitting and working together. Now, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to close by giving you a couple of practical things. And I always hesitate to give practical steps because a lot of times when we come to this part of a sermon, that's when we start taking notes. Because we say, well, this is what's important, all that other stuff. Tell me what to do, Pastor, right? And we take those things and we try to do them, but we try to do them without the power and leadership of the Holy Spirit. And if you try to do some of these things, if you try to submit to your husband without the power and leadership of the Holy Spirit, you're going to get angry and frustrated and want to quit. And you're going to get mad at God and mad at me for suggesting it. Now you will. And sometimes it's even worse afterwards than it was before. You can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm encouraging you, all of these steps need to come under the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit. How can, you, how can you affirm Him? How can you meet the needs of your husband? Well, the first thing that you can do is you can let him lead. Now, that sounds simple, but it's not. That means you can let him have a chance to make some decisions. Now, decisions come in the home as a partnership. You can discuss them and you can debate them and you can argue them. But there needs to come a time where you as the wife say to the husband, we've talked about it, now you need to decide. You need to let them be a spiritual leader in your home. You need to let them know and encourage them that you're willing to follow, that you're willing to trust them. Create opportunities for them to lead. Let them lead in prayer. I know we live in a culture today and people are always telling me, listen, the women in the churches you know, are more spiritual and the men are not spiritual anymore and the men are not spiritual leaders. Do you know why? It's because it's easy for women to take over that role. It's a lot easier to take over that role than to try to encourage and bless your husband to be that person. Just is. It's easier to say he's not doing it. I'm going to step in and do it. 
You can still spiritually guide your kids and encourage and bless your husband to be a spiritual leader. It's called submission. Let him lead. Encourage him and bless him. The second thing, have confidence in him. Build up his self-esteem so that he knows that when he leads, he can trust that you're behind him. He knows that you believe in him. Express confidence in his ability. Let him know that what he's doing is good enough and it's done well and you appreciate him and you love him for it because that meets that need to be appreciated. But you also need to give him room to fail. Because I've got to tell you, ladies, men are going to fail. All of us fail. But if you don't ever let him lead, he's not going to get a chance to fail. And the only way we can learn is through our failures. But here's the beautiful part. I do a lot of marriage counseling. When a wife gives husband enough room to lead and to fail without thinking that his wife is going to just guilt him and beat him up when he fails, he has confidence to know that he's going to make a decision. And even if it doesn't work out, he is going to come back with his spouse and they are going to work together to make the right decision. And what happens is instead of a negative, it becomes a plus. Give him enough room to make decisions. And then when he decides, give him enough room to make mistakes and help him. Bless him by helping him learn from his mistakes. Use your gifts for that. Build him up. Give him room to fail. The fourth thing you need to do is communicate. You need to let him know what your needs are. And you need to do that verbally. Okay? Clearly. In English. Okay? How do you expect for your husband to meet your needs? When you don't tell him. And I know women, you say, oh, I show him. Believe me, he doesn't know. I have women all the time that say, I, I, oh, he should know. I, you know, I hint and I him and I do this and I do this. And he, does, he doesn't know. Men are slow. Tell them, these are my needs. These are the things that I need in my life for you to support. These are the things that I need from you. Communicate with him. Let him lead. Let him be willing to fail. Put confidence in him. And then the last thing is encourage him as protector and provider. Let him know you appreciate what he does. Don't fight over money. Not bringing home enough. Because listen, a man's need is to provide. He wants to be a success. And when he hears you say, you know, we don't have enough for this and you don't make enough, that kills his spirit. Now, if he's lazy, you need to get him working. But if he's working his best and doing work, then you need to bless him and encourage him and be content. Doesn't mean you can't work. You need to work. But you need to let him know that what he is doing provides for your family. He can protect you. Let him worry about you. Women get mad when husbands worry about them. Why do you worry? You don't trust me? I can drive to the grocery store. No, you need to understand. He has a need to want to protect you. He he has a need to... He's not being overbearing. He's not being untrusting. He's just trying to communicate that he wants to protect you. You need to let him. And when he does, instead of getting angry, appreciate him for it. Communicate to him. Appreciate it. You see, ladies, what you need to understand is the idea of submission is not about being subservient or less than your husband, but rather it's you helping God 
help your husband become who God's called him to be. And that's beautiful. A healthy marriage takes work, takes submission, takes trust in God. But women, you can make a difference in your husband if you trust him. Listen, marriage is a spiritual battlefield. We learn that from the garden. It's a war. Sin took it. And we're trying in the name of Jesus to take it back. Paul's going to tell us later in Ephesians 6 that when we battle, we don't spiritually battle against flesh and blood. It's against principalities. And so when you're in a war in your marriage, you're not fighting your spouse. You're fighting principalities and old selfish nature. And it's a battle. It takes work. But the good news is Paul wouldn't have said this if he didn't think we could do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have it within you. Wives, lastly, what Paul is encouraging you to do is to allow your husband to be these things in the home, the spiritual leader, the guide, your emotional, physical, and spiritual protector. If you will do that, I promise you, the power of the Holy Spirit will change him, and he'll change you, and he'll change your marriage. You'll begin to experience blessings you never thought possible. But it starts with a spirit-led desire to see a change. Let's pray.